how can global communication become part of the core of the scholarship in communication and media studies? And why should this be the case? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Maria Celeste Wagner in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. It is my great pleasure to to host uh, today, Maria Celeste Wagner, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism, the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Celeste, as many of us know her, uh, obtained her PhD in communication at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also obtained an MA. Before that, she obtained her licenciatura in communication magna cum laude at Universidad de San Andrés in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Celeste uses quantitative, qualitative, and comparative methods to study media reception and influence around political and social issues, especially in relation to intersecting inequalities in the Americas. She is a very prolific uh, scholar with many journal articles under uh, her belt, a book contract already in, and is a recent recipient of a top student paper award uh, from the National Communication Association, among many other honors. Celeste, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo, for that very kind and generous introduction. It's a, it's a real honor and pleasure to be here. The pleasure and the honor are all ours. So Celeste, tell us how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Uh, wow, uh, that makes me think um, of many things that may, makes me go uh, way back even to high school, high school almost. Um, I think that my interest in academics um, really emerged in high school. Uh, and I had two great teachers who were very inspiring. And I started loving the the profession of teaching first. Uh, and when I was still in high school, I started teaching actually uh, English for, for kids at a, at a private in institute. And I really enjoyed being in front of the classroom. Uh, but my main interest and my my dream actually of becoming a professor is something that started when I was in college. Um, I, I loved my college experience. I, I studied at Universidad de San Andres in Argentina and I had wonderful professors and many of them had PhDs, uh, which is something that 
I probably didn't know what that was until that moment. Um, and I started to really admire the life that they had and, and really wanting to become like, like one of them. But spe especially, uh, I have to say that my the first time I thought I want to be, this is the career that I want to have, and I want to try to be a professor uh, and do a PhD, was after taking uh, my first class with Eugenia Michelstein, who is a professor at the Universidad de San Andres. She she did her PhD at Northwestern with you, Pablo, so I don't have to introduce her to you, but for some, some members of the audience, um, maybe. And she was such a wonderful um, teacher in the classroom. And I started really admiring her whole career and, and, and learning what was this idea of doing a PhD in the United States? I had never been in the United States before. So I took her first class that was on, on issues of uh, new media technologies and political communication. And then I took a second class with her. Uh, this was my third year in college. And that's when I decided, okay, I will I will try to work my way and and, and really try to to be more more like Eugenia in life. Uh, so that's when I started working with her. And um, initially, you know, it was just taking her classes, but soon I started being a research assistant, not only for her, but also for you. It was when you were both writing the news gap and I started doing content analysis um, and we started working together. And since then, I, I knew that even though I started thinking of teaching first, I fell in love with research and the profession of doing research. And um, so this experience, which then became the Center for Media and Society in Argentina was absolutely foundational for me. Uh, seeing both of your leadership, Eugenia, and, and yours um, was something that I just felt a profound admiration. I loved working with the the different RAs, which are now, you know, studying all over the world and doing fabulous careers in different places. So that was definitely the foundational moment in which being part of MESO, the Center for Media and Society in Argentina, I I realized, okay, I will try to I will try to do this because of course it was never a certainty until I got accepted to PhD programs. It was it was a long journey, definitely not easy. If it hadn't been uh, you know for knowing you and her, probably I would not have known how to how to apply to do a PhD abroad. So that's I think that's when when all started. Okay, thank you so much for your kind words. Um, it's been a, a great pleasure, uh, personally speaking, to see you evolve and grow and mature as the fabulous scholar that you are today. Um, so let's go back in time. It's let's just say 2014, 2015, you are mm -hmm. thinking about pursuing PhD overseas. You ended up at Penn in the US. Did you consider other countries or did you focus primarily on the US? Um, not really. I, I mean, initially when I started thinking about the idea of doing a PhD, I did not know what that entailed. I did not know about the different traditions, but I had professors who had studied in different countries, so I knew that was an option. But um, soon I, I basically narrowed it down to the United States only, uh, mostly because I was seeing that many of the scholarships to do a fully funded PhD uh, somewhere else that was not the United States were very difficult. Uh, for many of them, you needed citizenship. Uh, and I just found it it was 
challenging. It was something that I was not going to be able to fully achieve, especially because of those financial reasons. And also because I really loved the format of the PhD in the US. Um, I love that it's a, it's a long-term commitment. You take a lot of classes. It, it has a, a initially a period that is of formation. You just take lots of classes. You, you don't have to start your PhD with a fully defined uh, research project, or you you just start with some research interests, and it's a a very formative um, period of, of your life. So I really love that. And again, uh, that's what Eugenia had done. I learned through her, and I was like, okay, this sounds fabulous. I, I This is what I would like to do. So yeah, not, not really. It was uh, from very early on, uh, the US was where I wanted to do it. Okay. Now, now that we sort of uh, established that, um, how was the experience of applying to US universities? And I'm thinking that we might have listeners of this episode who are in various parts of Latin America, various parts of Africa, Southeast mm -hmm. Asia Pacific region. Maybe the experience may be more common in North America, but not necessarily in Mexico, but in Canada uh, or in continental Western Europe um, in general. That's why I'm focusing on these regions. How was the experience, uh, lessons learned, uh, do's and don'ts? Um, I wish I had done X, Y, and Z differently. And how did you end up choosing your program? Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you for that question, especially because I think that uh, for Latin American scholars in particular, but as you were saying, for many uh, young students around the world, for many of us, when we don't belong to the networks, the institutional um, uh, cultures uh, that are, you know, it, for instance, the, the, the PhD culture in the United States, there is so much knowledge that you need to have in order to be able to successfully apply, not, not even to to be admitted at a program. So I think that mentorship in this process for me was absolutely key. There were many things that I I had no idea about uh, what it uh, entailed. Uh, and it was through conversations with Eugenia mostly, but also you and some of my professors who had also done PhDs in the US, like Amman Galperin, I, I could learn, I could get a sense of, okay, this is, this is the material. Of course, you go to the websites and you you get a sense of, okay, to apply, I need something that is the GRE. What is the GRE? So I would Google and then I would talk to someone who maybe had done uh, their PhD or, or had recently been accepted, maybe an, another Argentinian person who was applying to another program. But in all of these uh, instances, what's most important is really to have good mentors, people who can help you navigate the institutional process your career, your experience, your interests, those are things that you can determine yourself. And I already, by the time that I applied, um, I had one publication, I had been working on, on research projects at, at MESO, the Center for Media and Society, with you and with Eugenia. So it's not that those things were completely foreign, but the process of knowing how to apply, how to write a statement of purpose, um, having someone that can proofread your English, and also especially someone who who is familiar with American academia, which again has different traditions in what is expected and how to write these documents. So it was something that was very challenging for me, especially because I was working a lot. I needed to save a lot of money to pay for all of the applications. I submitted applications to 11 different schools and each one of them was 
a couple or or more hundred dollars and you know earning Argentinian pesos in different jobs that I had, this was a huge investment. Definitely an amazing investment. I would do it all over again, but I was working so much. I was doing a master's program at night from 7 to 10 p.m. Uh, every night. So I remember it was a very challenging, hard year. And if I had not had this mentorship of someone sitting with me, like Eugenia did, you know, okay, let me read your statement of purpose. How does this read? And on all of this help. And the same thing with you talking about different programs. Um, I had never been in the United States. So I, I, I've met people who made decisions about where to apply or where to go based on geography, the cities where that they like or things like that. And I had zero idea about that. Um, so it was all Google and great mentors. Uh, and I think I encourage people in different parts of the world who want to pursue uh, an ac academia, want to pursue uh, their, their dream. For me, it was a dream to do a PhD, to really try to get good mentorship from people that has done it. People who can dedicate even half an hour, uh, one hour of their time to, to help you understand how to navigate these institutional processes. I think that is that is key. And I would definitely change things. Um, but I, I was still happy with how it how it happened. But it was definitely something that I did with um, a lot of stress, especially, you know, GRE, the TOEFL, all of these exams. It was stressful, but uh, it worked out. <laughs> it worked out beautifully. You went to a spectacular program and worked with uh, one of the greatest political communication scholars <laughs> alive. Um, now, Celeste, We've been talking maybe, I don't know, for 15 minutes, and you mentioned the word mentorship so many times uh, that I have to ask you this question. So among scholars, there is always conversation about how to mentor, okay? And we, as a matter of fact, many institutions, senior colleagues men, mentor junior colleagues, right? And they're all we, we workshops about do's and don'ts, best practices, share experiences, etc. But we rarely ask our mentees what makes a good mentor from their own standpoint. So what has made a good mentor for you? I love that question because I am very grateful to all the mentors I've had. And I've had mentors ever since high school. As I was telling you, I had two uh, teachers in high school who really pushed me to do my, to apply to do um, my licenciatura, my bachelor at Universidad de San Andres, which is a, you know, private school, very strong in academics, but also very expensive if you don't have a scholarship. So I was not even considering it. I had not even signed up for the, um, the course that you have to take before taking the exams. And I decided pretty late, uh, thanks to their mentorship, their trust, they 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 really encouraged me. Like, I think we think you have the potential, you can do it. And they helped me study and prepare for these exams so that I could apply. Uh, so they have been very, um, very important in as my first academic mentors, my literature and my math teacher uh, in high school, my last year of high school. And then, um, you know, I've had absolutely wonderful mentors. Um, Silvia Ramirez-Helves in Universidad de San Andres, she has also been a great mentor. I was very lucky to work and learn from Eliseo Verón uh, in Argentina. 
and also a very different type of mentor, but also has been a great mentor. And then Eugenia, you, and of course, my 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 pen professors, especially my advisor, Michael Delicarpini. And I, I have to say that I've been extremely lucky to work not only with really fabulous and amazing awarded uh, scholars, as all of you are, but also very nice people. And I don't think this is an advice of how to be a good mentor because <laughs> you, you are a nice person, right? It's not a matter of um, performing or becoming one, although I think we can, we, could, we can always do better. But I was very lucky to have mentors that were incredibly, incredibly good people and that they always wanted the best for me. So I think that is something that makes a good mentor. Um, and in my specific experiences, um, that has meant that they challenge you, but that they give you responsibilities because it is through having to do things on your own, sometimes for the first time and having having the trust, you know, someone that you admire telling you, you can do this on your own and I trust you and I will supervise you and I'm here for advice, but now you're in charge, have been uh, really, really important moments in my my growing up as a researcher, as a as a scholar, uh, that trust uh, and also challenging you. I I started, you know, I remember when we started writing one of our first papers together on blogs in the USA. I was doing qualitative content analysis, and you said, you know, both of you said, okay, you're going to do this yourself, and in you know, in in a few weeks, this day, we're going to meet and you're going to report back. And that was a huge responsibility to me, but I felt like, okay, they are saying that I can do it. I can do it. So I think it's a combination of this, this quality of being great people. I, I've been very lucky to work with great people. And also this, this combination of challenging you uh, and assigning you responsibility, but always being there for you if they, if you need, you know, to ask a question, to if you need feedback, and also very kind and generous feedback, uh, not always, you know, uh, wanting the best, the best for you. So I think that makes a great mentor. All right, super interesting answer. So, so let's then go back chronologically, but not so entirely. So. You arrive to the States. You're not only a foreign student from Latin America, but you are a foreign student based on what you just shared with us, who has not been in the US ever, had not been in the US ever, right? Um, yeah. There are some students from overseas who you know, might be you know, more familiar with the places where they are going to undertake graduate work, right? Um, that was not your case. So, how was the experience and in particular, how was what we could call the transition phase, which I don't know how long it lasted for you, probably varies mm -hmm. person from person, where you are learning the culture, learning the institutions, learning the procedures, while having to perform at the same time, because you don't have the luxury of going into a classroom, learning everything, and then once you have learned, you go out in the world. Right. And that includes everything. It includes language, it includes cultural competence, it includes administrative issues. Um, what would you say were the highlights of that transition phase, however long it lasted? Yeah, it I think it's it's always a work in progress. Um it is I think I went through different periods. Uh one is um 
you you get accepted you start planning leaving your life behind in only a few months which is very emotionally exhausting even when you don't realize in the moment uh you're getting rid i i came here with two suitcases and a carry-on and that was it all of my stuff i sold them i gave them away my books were somewhere in my parents house half of them i i gave to other people and then you become this person with two suitcases, a new visa that you finally got right on time. And you are on Ezeiza, in my case, in Argentina. And that is something that emotionally, it's it's a lot. And then you come here and I was so happy to start my PhD. It was something that I had dreamed for years. I decided that I wanted to do a PhD in 2011 when I was an undergrad working for you in the News Gap. I, that's something I wanted to do already. But I started applying in 2015, so four years later, because I needed research experience. I needed to start a master's program. I needed uh, ideally a publication because it's we have to admit that many times when you are applying from abroad, you need to build uh, your your application package and make it make it strong so that committees, you know, in a place where they might not know much about your country, uh, your how your discipline is in your country, your university, um, you need to call their attention. So I worked very hard for years. So all of a sudden, uh, five years later, I was finally arriving in Philadelphia to start my PhD. So there's a period where I felt so incredibly grateful for doing what I was doing that I was not thinking about how I was feeling or the, the things that I was struggling with because I was just, you know, this is amazing. I have to be thankful. I have to be grateful. And everything is perfect. This is my dream. But then time, you know, after not that long, you start realizing that, oh, I actually, I thought I never lived in English. I never had to speak in English every day, all of the time. And you start hearing yourself and you don't sound like you think you are. And you you think that you want to say something that is smart and then you raise your hand in a classroom and you don't know, you can't finish the sentence and you start thinking, oh, no, my professor is going, going to think that I'm dumb and all of these, these things as a first year student, we all kind of feel. But when you add accent to that and sometimes not even understanding fully people with different accents, we were a very international community, people from all 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 over the United States. And I learned English in my English classes and through television. So I, there were so many people that I, I struggled understanding. We would go to a bar. There was just a little bit of noise and I was out of that social setting. I could not understand. So I think definitely uh, there are so many adjust adjustments that you have to go through. For me, language was a big one um, because sometimes you might think, it's just about communicating, but it really impacts how your self-esteem, how you think about your abilities and how you think about, for instance, it was very hard for me to make a joke in English, maybe for years. Um, and I, of course, I think I'm more, I'm funnier in Spanish, but I, at least now I can try to convey it. Uh, but all of those things impact your personality and your, your trust in yourself and you start missing things that you didn't know you cherished. And it's not just nostalgia. It's that your whole cultural symbols, backgrounds, sounds, smells, they drastically change. So doing that while starting your PhD, it is a challenge. Uh, but I got so much support from my international uh, friends or my friends who had an immigration background and, and could understand. And I know that without them, I wouldn't have been able to 
to do it, you know, happily. Uh, some of my best friends now, they they were international students too. Uh, so I I think that as as with everything in life, you you get through it collectively as a group with your friends. Excellent. Very interesting answer. Let me let me challenge that answer slightly. So what you are describing, it seems to me, two twin processes of enculturation, but you are so the corollary of this account focuses on the collective. And I want to focus on the complementary side, which is the personal. So there is an aspect that you what you described that has to do with inhabiting a new language, learning it, learning the jokes, learning the you know different accents, tonalities, etc. And becoming proficient, developing mastery, and all that happens, right? But there is another side of it, which is letting a new language inhabit you. Right? Mm -hmm. How is Celeste as a person now that she is partially inhabited by English and in their you know, in your practice in everyday life, you are mostly inhabited, professionally at least, right? Mostly inhabited by English. Right? English is speaking through you. How does that change Celeste the scholar, Celeste the teacher, Celeste the researcher? I love that question because it is true that I don't think about that other side of the coin as much. Um, I think that English opened um, a whole new worlds for me because I was able to communicate first with people who communicate, who speak other languages that are not English as well as English. So I think that my, my English Celeste, as you were saying, is someone who can, who learned how to navigate cultures in a way that my Spanish Celeste couldn't because back in Argentina, that was my world. That was my framework of reference for everything. So the fact that I moved to another country and I had to learn a new culture in a new language also allowed me to learn way many more cultures that are not just the many plural cultures that are part of the US, but also uh, around the world. And that is also something very specific about the PhD experience in my case, where I had a cohort and a school where there was a big proportion of international students. So I started having friends who were from different countries who we were all trying to communicate uh, and we were able to do so thanks to English. So it's very common to have conversations in which we say, oh, you know, in my uh, native language, I say this like this. And if I translate it, this is what it would sound in English, but this is what we mean. And this is how people say it. And all of a sudden it opens the ability to share one language with people who actually have multiple, um, opens uh, a new world of cultural experiences. I was able to understand things about other cultures um, and that was thanks to English. So I'm incredibly thankful to the moment in which my parents decided to send me to uh, learn English. I, I went to, uh, both my parents worked uh, when I was growing up and they worked a lot, even weekends sometimes. So we would go to school in the morning, in the afternoon, and then 
my dad would drive us to a private English institute that a neighbor had, but it was very far away. So we were, uh, it was like 40 minutes by car. So we we would go together with my sister and after school, we were so tired. I hated going. It was like at 7 p.m. after all day in school, twice a week since first, since first or second grade. Um, but it, because it was so far away, he would go with us, with my sister and I, he would stay in the class. So he started taking English classes with us. Uh, and that's that's the English he knows. He's, he learned it when he was, you know, in his 30s, 40s, taking his daughters to, to learn English. And he said, you know, you need to do English. You need to learn English. That's that's how the world will open for you. And we were like, no, dad, I don't want to. I want to be home, at home. Uh, but I'm so thankful that they both made the efforts of sending us because English opened you know, all of, so many opportunities for me uh, doing the PhD in the U.S. As, as one. But then my being in the U.S., doing a PhD in the U.S. really opened just a, a whole world of different cultural experiences, thanks to the ability of being able to communicate with other people. Um, but yes, I still think, sometimes I think in English, which is something more recent, um, and is something that uh, sometimes I say things, this is the one that I hate the most, when I say things in Spanish that are translation of a phrasal verb or, or an expression that we say in English, and then I have my mom who doesn't know English saying like, what are you saying? Like, that doesn't make sense. And then I realize, oh, my brains are just, my English and my Spanish brain are mixing. So I think that's that's great. Languages are beautiful. They open up um, so many different worlds to us and now I don't care as much about my accent. I'm proud of my ability to speak different languages. I'm not proficient at all, but I, I'm conversational in Portuguese. And, you know, we do the best that we can. And I really respect people who, who do that in all aspects of life. So I just keep trying. Excellent. And it's a perfect segue into another question that I wanted to ask you based on your expertise and your research because I do think it connects based on the answers that you, you know, the, answer, the way you just answered the question that I posed before, which is among other traits, your research program is a strongly comparativist one, right? And uh, the way you do comparative research is very culturally grounded, trying to understand the cultural distinctiveness of the different contexts which you study, rather than just comparing a few output variables, right, that happen to be the same. Mm -hmm. In your experience, and in particular for somebody thinking about doing that for their dissertation, what are the challenges and opportunities afforded by comparative research? I think that, um... So many times we overlook the importance that comparisons have in making sense and creating meaning of our world, even when, you know, it doesn't have to be international comparisons. It doesn't have to be. But uh, as you know, Mora Matasi and you develop in your book about how how we really learn about things through comparisons. I mean, essentially, an experiment is also a comparison. But when you think about how we make meaning in our daily lives, how something makes us happy, worries us, or it's always in relation to something else. Um, so I think that when I started being interested in doing comparative research, of course, it was grounded in my 
experience as an international student in a setting that was not my cultural setting and, and grounding those interests in the idea that uh, in my own experience, knowing how how certain things have a meaning in one context and then you go to another one and have a different one and even how your own identity changes depending on where you are and who you are with uh which is something that we're more familiar with when it comes to understanding interpersonal bonds and for instance how we're different with our parents compared to our friends people are more familiar with those things but context really is everything when you are trying to understand meaning um so I think it is a big challenge when it comes to doing comparative work to do it culturally grounded in two different cultures, because the way I approach comparative research is that I, as a scholar, I do not want to impose academic scholarly categories in one culture where that doesn't fit, that doesn't make sense in that culture. So you need to understand each culture to see what are the meaningful emerging categories but then if you want to compare, you need to have something in common if you want to compare. So finding those commonalities, even when there is different language, when one some categories are more invisible than others, it's really challenging, and especially when you in academia, you know, ideally you you want to do theory development. So how do you do theory development when you're comparing very different things? So I I love to do comparative work. I think that we can understand what's specific and, and what's not. And that's something that we we end up over it's it's overlooked. When we only look at one context, it's very easy to overlook what are some of the contextual cultural factors that might help us understand something if you're taking that for granted, because there's no variance. It's you're taking that culture as a default. So I think we can learn a lot more. Uh, but it's definitely challenging for theory development, for um, conducting, you know, research when you need to have some commonalities, and sometimes things are very different. And how is it to quote unquote sell a comparative dissertation on the job market? <laughs> well, I think that we have had very strong traditions in, you know, especially with comparative media systems and Halin and Mancini. We uh, in in communication studies, media studies, comparisons are not something that is new at all, and have been um, especially in political communication. A lot has emerged as a result of comparative politics. So comparisons and and concerns about the global globalization have been present for a long time. So it's not nothing. It's not new, but I think that uh, right now the field it's very hard to do comparative work, especially qualitative comparative work when uh, just collecting data requires so much knowledge, you know, we're talking about language, we're talking about cultural knowledge. Uh, it means being on the ground, which is expensive. You need to travel, you need to dedicate time being there. So sometimes I understand that it is very challenging. It is very expensive. And to do that, you need to have all sorts of institutional uh, support, uh, economic support, but also uh, time, uh, good advising. So. I, I can understand why it is hard, but sometimes I feel that we don't do enough of comparative research. And that's why, I, again, I love the book that you recently um, wrote with Mora Matassi, because there's this idea that sometimes we shy away from comparative work, even when comparisons can be made across platforms, across countries, uh, across communities. Um, so I think that 
again, if we did more comparisons, we would be able to better understand what is specific and what is general, because it's not all difference. We have some interesting, not universal concerns, of course, uh, or interpretations or meaning making, but there are things that we share across cultures, across groups. Um, and you only learn that if you compare. So I think it is challenging when you have to sell in the job market, especially if you, um, if you are trying to say, I mean, a lot of people will expect you to be an expert in a region or in, in a set of countries. And instead of seeing this as a lens to do research. So sometimes it is challenging how you can frame what comparative work means in your research agenda and, and what are you an expert on? Are you an expert on comparative methods or are you an expert in two case studies? Um, I want to be an expert in comparative methods. So um, case studies are something that you should choose because of theoretical reasons, even when those are personal. I think you need to know the culture. I need to think you need to know the language. Excellent. And then building on your own experience, um, your work or a significant portion, because you have done many articles, but thinking about your dissertation, right? it's a comparison of two countries which do not normally get compared within a hemisphere that is normally thought of in binary terms, right? I'm talking about the Americas. And when people compare in the Americas, so they might compare US, Canada, maybe US, Argentina, maybe within South America. But there have been many fewer comparisons north-south, in your case, the US and Argentina. Mm -hmm. So through this project of yours, you have engaged with the comparison between North America and South America. And also, you know, there's a growing Latino population, Latinx population in the US, essentially one every five people identify as Latinx. So there is a growing discussion about Latino media studies in the field. So what would you say from the vantage point of having been educated from your graduate work in the US and now having a faculty position in a US university as well. How is the place of Latin American media studies or communication studies and Latino media studies or Latino communication studies seen? And what are the challenges for either or both of these domains of inquiry in the years ahead, in your opinion? Yes, um, as you were saying, it's not uh, usually the U.S. is not compared to any country, actually, not just South America, because there's usually this notion of American exceptionalism that it's almost fruitless to compare the U.S. to any other country because this is a, just a unique, uh, exceptional country. And what I argue is that actually in the Americas, since colonization, there have been very similar institutional experiences that have shaped social life, political life. Um, and so many things are different, of course, uh, especially when you think about economic development, cultural level factors, but many things are similar too. So I think that um, it is important to break that uh, the silos and really compare things that are usually not compared, not just to do it just because, but because there are things that, again, we can shed light on what is unique about the US experience and what is not, what is something that actually crosses um, North, uh, Central, and South America. 
And I think that there have been many, many different, like different traditions. You know, Latin American communication scholarship has its own traditions. And American, um, U.S. American scholarship has its own traditions. And Latino media studies is such an important contribution in communication uh, scholarship in the U.S., which unfortunately so many times it doesn't travel back to Latin America and vice versa. So many times when we talk about these things, of course, it has to do with where are we publishing? Are we publishing in, in what language? That is something that happens a lot with Brazil, not just academia, but so many different cultural forms, literature, so many great authors uh, who write in Portuguese, Brazilian authors that some sometimes don't get translated. And uh, Latin American publics who speak Spanish, we don't get to consume or read those things. So it's not just in academia, but I think, of course, a lot has to do with language and translation and the venues where we're publishing. But also it has to do with different traditions that sometimes because we don't use the same keywords, terms or frameworks, we don't realize that we're actually studying this similar things. Um, so I think that there needs to be more dialogue between these two different traditions because we're actually many times trying to understand similar processes uh, and experiences. Excellent. That's a perfect segue then into my concluding question, which is, if you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? So I'm a big advocate of global communication. Um, and I, I think that if I had to, if I had a wish, I would love for certain certain things that I think are at the core of global communication to be the norm. <laughs> I would like for, as, as we've been talking about so much about comparative work, I would like for context to be always accounted for. Like um, Rojas and Valenzuela have argued and many others that we should really take into consideration culture. Uh, so many times those are things that they are foundational, but we are not specifically studying them uh, from a comparative point of view. And global communication scholarship has, since it's, uh, since the beginning, has uh, approached um, subjects, objects of study, the, the scholarship, assuming that these things are not stable. Uh, concepts like cultural hybridity, you know, Marwan Kredi's idea of hybridity, this idea of how things change depending on where you are, who you are with, this fluidity of culture, um, and also so many studies around global media studies. There's things that are not taken for granted. For instance, uh, as, I, as I was saying, the context that we study, uh, what what do things mean? Social class does not mean the same thing in different places. Uh, there are many international forces, market forces that shape so many times what we consume, what we do, how we use media. Um, and in global communication, these are things that are, have been at the core of, of its tradition. Um, and I wish if I could, if I could change something that it, this forms of approaching knowledge production were more the norm than the exception, um, that we could really bring in more multicultural and international experiences to the topics that we study, um, especially in communication, where communication is, is an issue that is, first, it's universal in the sense that communication is something that crosses all cultures, countries, and communities. Um, 
but also because we are studying many times issues that are absolutely founded in globalization um so i guess that would be my wish that the, the way that global communication scholarship approaches knowledge production was the norm and not the exception thank you so much celeste that's a fabulous wish uh, and a great way to conclude this conversation thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us Thanks to the audience for staying with us uh, to the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Celeste. Thank you so much. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.